I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. have the video just to see you but uh the, report, the audio is the only thing that people are going to have access to when we, yeah. when we publish it so oh, but i'm dressed up <laughs> <laughs> yeah scrubs and all um yeah. we are we're so excited to be sitting down with dr stephen bead uh the medical director of the nova scotia organ donation program at nova scotia health um stephen i i know that that's not the only thing that uh, falls under your your title and your bio um, please take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners and, and give us a little bit of insight into uh, what Dr. Stephen Breed, or Bede. Bede's uh, life is all about. <laughs> well, it depends on the day, but thank you very much for the invitation. I think this is, this is a great opportunity to connect with people that, that maybe don't think about this. I, I ended up um, finding myself in this place through a circuitous and unplanned route my base specialty, my training uh, is anesthesia, and I always knew that I really enjoyed the intensive care unit. So although my base specialty is anesthesia, most of my professional life now is doing adult intensive care medicine. So I'm in the ICU with, with the sickest people. And in the context of, of that, I had been the head of the department some time ago, and one of the transplant surgeons came to me and, and basically said, you know, we've been, we've been taking care of this transplant um, side of the house for years, and we've also been taking care of the donation side, and that kind of doesn't make sense. I had trained in the States, although I'm from here, went to medical school here, I did some training in the States, and the system's really quite different south of the border. So I had really no knowledge of the organ donation world based on my exposure in the US but the argument that my transplant colleague was making was was a very valid one the intensive care doctors are very logical people to support the donor families and the donors so when he said that we should be doing it i thought you know, you're absolutely right. How do we do this? Mm. And and so many years ago, uh, we started a, a pilot project to see if Nova Scotia, which had a very uh, mature transplant program, but was one of the only provinces without a donation program, should we start one? And the long and short of it was that that's based on a pilot project that was successful, that convinced the government to set up a provincial donation program. And I inherited the role as a medical director and I've had it now for, I think, 16 years. When, when you say there is no uh, donation program at the time, do, does that mean that like the, the province would 
like allow other provinces or areas to sort of manage like how they receive their organs? To some extent in uh, not completely, but we did not have any donation coordinators. We didn't have any infrastructure. So if you had a potential organ donor, they had people on the transplant side that would do some of the assessment. And if they had an offer for an organ from a different province, those people would be fielding those offers. And that's that's just not the right way to do it. It was better than not having something, but having people on the donation side who are actually separate from our transplant colleagues is the right way to go. It didn't exist. It should have existed. And, and of course, that was an argument to, to set it up. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, what kind of like before you started doing this work, like what did Nova Scotia's donation program look like? Like, it, I, I mean, there wasn't one. I, I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. I know. So, so like what like it sounds like uh, it would have been just a total shit show in terms of like. <laughs> Like pulling things together because I, I, you know, I don't know anything about organ donation uh, other than I, 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 I mean, I, I think it's probably a pretty vital and like important thing. Um, but, but I, I also like, I would guess that when dealing with organ donation, you, you're, you're kind of working with like a real limited period of time, right? Like those organs, <laughs> once those organs are say in a, in a body that's like been a part of a, a an accident or something. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the person has passed away and they've, they've, they've kind of like ticked that box. Like, yes, you can take, take my eyes, take my, take my pancreas, take my liver, take, you know, whatever. Um, you're kind of racing against the clock to get that organ into the person who needs it. Yeah. You right? probably need like a pretty structured system yeah, to like yeah, manage yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like, where we, where we at a point where it was so, it, there was, there was such a lack of a system that, that a lot of patients were kind of falling by the wayside because of that. Well, uh, to some extent, yes. What was happening before was that people who had an illness that might lead to their death and that would enable them to be an organ donor just were not being recognized as potential organ donors. So nobody Mm. kind of thought to talk to the family about that. There was no system that supported the family in making the decision. Uh, The physiology around what's called neurological death or brain death can be quite complicated. And there weren't people that were focused on that. So overall, our organ donor potential before we had set this up was a lot lower than it could have or should have been. And, And bringing trained people who are committed to making this happen is way better for the donor family it's better for the system at, at large, and we've seen we've seen a good result. We've seen our numbers go up, and that means people are better served. Do, do you know, um, in terms of like, so I'm thinking about uh, lung transplants, for example. I know that a lot of people. So Jeremy lives with cystic fibrosis, and um, it, there's a, there at least there was before he started taking trichafta a high likelihood that a lung transplant would be an option for him in his in the future. In but the I near know, future. I mean, and, that, that, those days were cro- those days were coming, creeping up yeah. quick. Yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. and so I know that for lung transplants, I'm not sure the percentage, but it could possibly be a hundred percent of lung transplants are done in Ontario. Like people will go from here to Toronto. Um, is that because there has hasn't been a, you Ooh. know a donor program here that has developed the like like ability to do transplants here? Or is that sort of a separate issue? 
it's a separate issue, but you bring up a really important point, and that is that people who need this life-saving therapy um, really do need it or they will die. This is not one of those want-to-haves. It's one of these need-to-haves. Mm-hmm. And the successful delivery of care for those people requires teams on both sides to work very well together. Clearly, the donation team need to recognize the potential organ donor, support them, manage the physiology so that happens. And then you need to have a transplant team who are able to actually do the operation care for people afterwards. And when we talk about a lung transplant program, the expertise needed to do that well is predicated on an experienced group of people doing it frequently enough that the whole team have that expertise. Mm. And so concentrating really, really specialized medical services into areas that would end up with a high volume ends up with better patient care overall. But it means if you're in Atlantic Canada and you're English speaking and you need a lung transplant, part of the deal is that you move to Toronto. Mm -hmm. You could go to Winnipeg, and if you're French-speaking, occasional patients have gone to uh, to Quebec. But we're talking about a family and a patient committing to move to Toronto to get the care. Now, in reference to the donation program, interestingly enough, for a variety of physiologic reasons, if you're an organ donor, you are least likely to donate organ uh, lungs than any other organ. Hmm. Which means that maximizing the chance to be a lung donor is really important. If if somewhere around 90 or 95% of people who donate organs can donate a kidney, but only 25% of people who are an organ donor donate lungs, then we need to make sure we do our best to maximize that lung donor potential. And in Nova Scotia, we're if we're not the best in the country, we're pretty darn close to it. Wow. Is that, is that, um, so for donating lungs, are those lungs then being like the donor program that's here? Are they sort of identifying lungs that would be good fits for people having transplants in places like Ontario, uh, Quebec, Winnipeg, and then those organs are being sent there? That's exactly what happens. We, we mm-hmm. identify the, the organ donor, take care of them here. They go to the operating room here and typically, uh, a transplant team would fly here from Toronto, if that's where they're going to go, and they would bring the organs back to Toronto for the the actual operation. Well, I should talk to people on flights more often because that would be such an interesting (laughs) conversation. What's in your cooler there, buddy? (laughs) What are are you guys doing? Well, we're just traveling here to harvest some organs and bring them back. That's fucking cool. I mean, I've never really thought about this, but um, it seems like there's... And and it seems like there would had to have to be some sort of like pretty cohesive um, communication network mm-hmm. between provinces dealing with healthcare, which which healthcare is provincial too. So. Yes, yeah, and yeah. it seems like that 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 tends to be kind of an issue um, in every other aspect of healthcare in Canada. You know, the the, the notion of like having access to certain certain medical records if you move and it's a whole fucking rigmarole of trying to like get, get information transferred to a new team. But, but there's, I mean, clearly that the ability is there to have this kind of communication network. And it, it makes me wonder like if, if uh, these types of programs could be uh, you know, in the future, like a set a good example for like how we can 
have a more integrated medical data system as a as a as a as a country as a whole. You make a great point because health is provincial and everybody seems to put sort of walls up around the border of their province. But, but transplant medicine is absolutely, by definition, cross-border traffic. We are routinely flying organs from one province to another because a patient is sicker in, in a different province. And the system is very dependent on, on great communication. And that's why having really well-trained donor people makes a difference. The mm. assessment of a potential organ donor is is a complicated process because we want to make sure that the organs that are going to go to a recipient are really the right match. Mm -hmm. And that means you need a lot of information and a lot of time to assess them. And yet there's real time pressure. You want time, but it has to happen quick. It's a, it's a pretty complicated dance that we've learned to do pretty well, I think. Mm. I, I I know that, uh, you know, so you've been doing this for, for the past 15 years, being the, the medical director for the, the Legacy of Life Provincial Organ and Tissue Donation Program. And s- over the last 15 years, Nova Scotia's organ donation rate has kind of skyrocketed and is considered one of the highest in Canada, correct? Correct, yes. So, so before all of this, before you kind of took on this uh, this mighty task, um, what provinces were, what provinces seem to be like really nailing it? And were there provinces that you guys kind of looked at to try to, try to, uh, you know, just investigate and, and kind of use them as the example to, to kind of strive for? Well, the interesting thing is that, um, nobody in Canada was doing a particularly good job. Hmm. Uh, some were doing a bit better than we were, but some other countries, we're doing, I mean, they were, they were really lapping the field. Spain is the country that everybody has referred to. And for Ooh. quite some time now, they have had the best numbers in the world. And what has happened over time, especially in the last decade or so, is a lot of countries, including Canada, have taken a really close look at the stuff Spain does and said, what's working there that we need to bring here? And we in Nova Scotia have definitely tried to take some of what they know works and bring it here. And turns out it does work. Turns Ooh. out they were onto something. What are, what are some examples of the things that they've been doing that we are trying to adopt here? Well, a couple of very important specific things. One of them is the establishment of what's called donation physicians. That basically means you take somebody who's critical care trained and you assign them the responsibility of supporting donation activity in their area. They become the local resource. They help identify the donors, educate their colleagues, review what happened and didn't happen. And that assignment with the expertise makes a huge, huge difference. And Spain did that first and we're doing it. Ontario basically doubled their donor rate. And one of the major things they did to double it was bring on these donation physicians. Mm. A second big part is what's called mandatory referral. That means if somebody is near death, The team is responsible for specifically looking at whether they could be a donor and phoning the program. So those are simple, seemingly simple things that have been integrated into our structure and they make a difference. Mm -hmm. 
I I'm I'm curious about. Um, I, I would love to talk about just the the whole concept of organ donation. I'm I'm sure that out of you know the the thousands of people that are listening right now, there's a probably a majority of them that are that I would say are like on the organ donation list. I, you know, I know I am because uh, yeah, just the way things work here. Um, yeah. I didn't opt out of it. So, so like I'm, I'm on that list. Um, but, but also I'm, I'm knowing that I'm sure there's also uh, even more people that, that just simply, it's not something that they really think about. Yeah. And so one of the things I'm curious about is, is like some of the, some of the, for the folks that might start thinking about it, what are some of the, um, what are the, some of the, like the common misconceptions around organ and tissue donation that you've kind of run into after 15 years of doing this kind of work? That is a great question because it's, it's an opportunity, I guess, to, to sort of set the record straight. One of them, which I find hard to believe, but I've heard it enough that I have to believe it, is the doctors aren't going to try and save me. They just want the organs. <laughs> Absolutely, completely false. <laughs> We're going to do everything we can do to save you. But if you have an illness that we can't fix, then let's do something that's good. Mm. My religion won't allow it. Uh, that's just not true. If you look at virtually every major religion, the leaders of those faith groups either actively support donation or support the right of the individual to make a decision. Um, I can't, if I donate, I won't be able to have an open casket, and that's important to me. Well, yes, mm. you can. Um, if you take my organs, you're just going to sell them. Absolutely false. Uh, although, in frankly, in some countries of the world, transplant tourism does happen. If Whoa. I if I really wanted to, I could buy a liver or a, a lungs or a kidney this afternoon uh, in certain parts of the world. Completely illegal, completely unethical. But yeah, it happens. Um, that's that's something we need to acknowledge. Uh, the organs are not going to go to the sickest person. They're going to go to some rich, powerful guy. Well, that's just not what happens. You're assessed based on, on how sick you are. Uh, I have a medical condition. I have diabetes. There's no way I could give my organs. Nobody would want them. Absolutely false. We have lots of people who have a medical condition that might mean, say, they're their heart is very bad, but maybe their kidneys are perfectly good. There's a variety of things like that that come up all the time. Mm. I, that's one thing that I've wondered about myself, like living with CF. I, I you know, I'm sure no one wants these lungs. <laughs> but like, you know, I like I don't know, is my, um, you know, do I have some like, do I have some real good looking kidneys that, that could like find a nice home if, if I didn't need them? You know, like, I, like do what kind of prior pre, pre-existing conditions actually sort of prevent you from from actually being able to take part in an organ donation program? Well, uh, the the I'll give you the answer, but in reference to you, you may have stellar kidneys, so feel free to 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 sign up for donation. <laughs> Done. Um, the uh, the absolute contraindications, the things that completely rule you out are basically active cancer. Yeah. So if you if you've got an active you know, breast cancer or, or bowel cancer or something like that, leukemia, then you won't be a donor. Sure. And clearly, you know, people I think can understand why, because the person who'd receive your organs has to be, has to have their immune system suppressed so they don't reject the organ. 
But if you've suppressed somebody's immune system and maybe you put an organ that has cancer cells in it, boom, you got trouble. So if you have active cancer, you can't be a donor. Now, interestingly, if you had cancer that was treated five or more years ago and you're considered cured, then we'll we'll take a close look. Maybe Mm. you still could donate. It would be a kind of a game day decision. Uh, In some places, we've said HIV, but even that's changing. So if you have HIV, in certain programs, you can donate an organ to another person with HIV who's on the wait list. Oh, wow. So there's, when you break it down, there's very, very few conditions that absolutely take you off the list. Mm. But there's a bunch of medical things that we would have to take a close look at. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. In in terms of um, the the types of organs that are needed, I'm imagining that there's like some transplants that are that are maybe maybe the word is easier isn't right, but that there's there's enough sort of organs to to uh, meet the needs of the people who are waiting to get transplants. And then I imagine that there's some that are, are, are really long lists that are much harder to get. Um, what does that look like? Can you give us some examples of ones that are maybe there's a little bit more uh, supply than the others? Well, the, the short answer is uh, there's a shortage of everything. There's a long wait list for every single organ. And the wait list varies by the clinical condition of the patient and a variety of things. But if you break it right down, the the largest number of people who are awaiting a transplant are the people who need a kidney by mm-hmm. far. Mm-hmm. But the, th- the good news about needing a kidney is that if you have to wait, we can support you with dialysis. Life on dialysis can be a real drag, but you're not dead. And, and so supporting you with dialysis while we await a kidney is certainly done, but you can wait a long time. In some places, you're waiting over five years for a wow. kidney. Now, if you're waiting for other organs, for example, uh, a liver, there are medical conditions that make you so sick with liver failure that if you don't get an organ right away, you'll, you're going to die. So your wait list, if you're that sick, could be very short. There's actually a system in Canada where if you are identified as as super sick, then you get the very first organ available in the country. If they can get it to you, you get you get the organ no matter where it is. Mm-hmm. And so if you're super sick, like about to die, you might get a liver within 24 or 48 hours. Wow. But most people wait longer. What kind of like in terms of those kinds of folks that are like in dire need of something, say, like a liver, are there is there anything in the literature or like the stats that that sort of speak to the amount of people that unfortunately just miss out 
you know, like that, that yes. there's, there's just not, there just, there, there wasn't the right donor in time and they, they just, they didn't get that, that organ that they needed and, and inevitably succumbed to their, their illness. Yeah. There's, there's two categories that address that. One of them is the number of people who are actively listed, they're waiting for an organ and they die while they're waiting. And it's somewhere in the 250 to 300 people per year in Canada die while they're waiting. Mm. And then there's another bunch of people, probably way more than that, who are waiting, they're on the list. And while they're waiting, they develop some other medical problem that now makes them so sick that they're not even a transplant candidate anymore, and they will typically die. So there will be hundreds of people that are going to die while awaiting a transplant for sure in Canada, Ooh. unfortunately. And it seems like that seems like obviously way too many people. Um, but at the same time, it feels like it's something that we could change. Like I, I think of the yes. the the rule, the 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 new, well, new within the last couple of years, uh, Nova Scotia's policy mm-hmm. on opt-out. Um, organ donation, did that make a, a, a difference or have you seen any impact from that in terms of uh, um, amount of organs that are now able to be donated? Well, we're starting to see signals that are encouraging. There's a couple things to, to highlight around the law. One of them is that when the premier mentioned he wanted to change this, we were the first in North America. So it's kind of a big deal. The argument we made to him was that changing the law, if it's strictly just words on a, on a piece of paper, is nothing. Mm. It's sentiment, but, but good luck, it'll go nowhere. However, if an agreement to change the law means that you invest in changing the way the system is set up, now you have every reason to believe you're going to be successful. And so some of the things I alluded to, like the donation physician, a mandatory referral, our infrastructure, our IT infrastructure and and all that stuff, that was put in place because we were bringing a new law in. And what we've already seen, and, and bear in mind, I'm saying this, we're seeing changes in the middle of a pandemic with COVID. Yeah. So without without COVID, it could have been even different. What we are seeing is that our referrals are gone up. The tissue donation has gone up quite dramatically. And um, so I think we're going to find X number of years from now, our stable donor number is going to be substantially higher than what we started with. Right. So you're saying like, like, you know, if this rule or this law was made 15 years ago when there was no system to even capture um, or create a, a structure for uh, donations to be received, then it would it would have done even less. But because of the fact that the system's in place and because of the tools or, or different pieces that are being added now, that will allow us to sort of maximize or capitalize on on the law because the law doesn't do anything unless the, the structure is there mm. to support it. I think that's, uh, yes, that's very accurate. And, mm. and we know, and this is, this is well documented, we know that the overwhelming percentage of Canadians support organ and tissue donation. Mm-hmm. And mm. the other thing that, to, that people need to understand, there's a couple things. One of them is that, and this is Canadian data, there's about six times as high a chance that over the course of your life, you're going to need an organ 
as it is that you're going to be an organ donor. So, and, and the majority of people who end up needing an organ have acquired disease, meaning, unfortunately, you were born with cystic fibrosis. Your disease may lead you to the point where you need a lung transplant. Most people who need an organ were healthy until they got high blood pressure and diabetes or healthy until they got. So they're sitting there at home saying, what do I care about organ donation? I'm a healthy guy. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe you are today, but unless you know what tomorrow looks like, uh, don't assume you or somebody in your circle isn't going to need this. Yeah. I mean, that's a very similar uh, sort of uh, mindset that uh, we've been trying to like, push on to folks over the last two years of like, well, what, what does COVID mean to me? I'm a, I'm a young, healthy male that, uh, that is active and fit. Well, you, you still yeah. should be washing hands and wearing a mask because, uh, COVID can, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you are in your life. COVID can really, can really fuck mm-hmm. you up. Yeah. I, I'm, um, just kind of circling back a little bit to, to, um, folks who need organ transplant and, and the sort of, um, <clears throat> different levels of severity or, or like, like, you know, dire straits that people find themselves in. I know that you were saying with kidneys, you can go on dialysis and you can, you can exist and, and thrive on dialysis for a long period of time. Um, but I know that, I know that, um, in some cases, actually don't know, I, I'm just assuming that in some cases, um, you know, so the, the reason I'm talking about this is I, a good a friend of mine, she was just telling me about a, a really close friend of hers who is very likely going to need a new kidney um, pretty soon. And she's already had a kidney transplant years ago. And I think the kidney was donated by her, her sister, so someone, a relative, someone close. And so she's coming up to a point where that, those, the, the, the kidneys that she had received a while back are, you know, they're, they're kind of like hitting their shelf life and she's going to have to be put on a list rather soon. And so in, in, in that case, um, say, you know, her husband is mm-hmm. a match uh, to donate his kidney to her. Yep. When 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 that's decided upon, um, does that does that like help the does that help the patient whatsoever in terms of getting a, a donation quicker? Or because he's a match for her and he's willing to donate a kidney, is the system looking at him going, "Well, we we'll take that kidney, but like there's somebody who needs it before her." Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like how do, how do you, how do you guys navigate those types of situations where somebody in the family can donate and, 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 and can they get that, um, ahead, you know, ahead of the line? That's actually a great question. Um, and it, and it highlights that the system is, is supporting everybody who needs a new organ, but living donation is different from from donation after death. Mm. What you're talking about is somebody who is able to to donate a, a live kidney. That puts you in a completely different category. Mm. If you have if you have somebody in your circle who is willing to donate and it's a directed donation to you, then they'll do the workup and the wait time for you is completely separate. It's dependent on you and and the donor and the system working something out, but it can happen quite quickly. Now, interestingly, in Canada, probably, I guess it's five years ago now, we started an interesting program, which has turned out to be very, very successful. 
let's imagine that my wife gets kidney disease and needs a kidney. And I say, great, take mine, but it doesn't match. She waits, except we set up a program that says, I'm donating one to the pool for live donors. So maybe my kidney goes to somebody in Toronto. And the person in Toronto who donated a kidney goes to somebody in Vancouver. And the person in Vancouver who donated a kidney happens to be a great match for my wife. And so the Vancouver kidney comes to Halifax. And that that piggyback system, which was set up a few years ago to to make sure that people who want to be a live donor can sort of maximize the the opportunity has turned out to be very very successful uh, it's like uh, it's like Oregon secret santa kind of you know <laughs> that's really sweet uh, yeah. I, i'm i'm curious about that because um um we had a, a friend of ours who was on the podcast a year or two ago to talk about his experience with um kidney donation um and and with a living donor like after that conversation i was like oh i want to sign up to be a living donor. And so I went through, I looked at the process and then uh, I was also looking into like bone marrow um, mm-hmm. donation. And, uh, and I, so I was doing this and I was just kind of doing this on my own. And I think there's like a question when you're filling out a form, that's like, have you talked to your family about this? Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I brought it up to my family and they were all like, no, you can't do that. Like there's so, so much risk. And mm. they were really, like worried about me doing it to the point where they were convincing me not to. Mm. And I, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to sort of digest that because I wanted to do this thing to help people. And I felt mm. like, Oh, I'm in the position to be able to do this. I yeah. should do it. But then also my family, like I, I also don't want to put my family in a situation where, you know, they're uncomfortable with something that I'm mm. doing. I imagine that this is not an uncommon situation for people to be in. Um, I, I just just to tag on yeah. to that that yeah. question, Brian. Like, uh, you, so you're talking about living living organ donation, yes. right? Yeah. And and of course that that's like an important process of like discussing that with your family. Um, and and I would love to hear your thoughts, uh, Doctor Beat, about why that's important, but also also why why would it be important to like discuss with your family whether or not you are someone who wants to be an organ donor. For, mm-hmm. for your organs after you've after you've yeah. passed, and what are the real risks in particular with mm. um, living organ donation? Again, you guys, you guys casually sit there asking awesome questions. <laughs> yeah, it's like we've been doing this for six years, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it worked. Um, let's let's break that down. Uh, in terms of the risk of living donation, living donation more or less comes down to kidney. And in certain centers, liver. Toronto has one of the biggest living liver programs in the world. And if you are in in need of a liver and you get worked up in Toronto and you have a donor, they will do it. We don't do that here. But donating a liver is a big deal. It can save somebody's life, but the donor is going through quite a large operation. And there's about a 20 or 30% chance of of having significant complications if you are a living liver donor. That's that's a big deal. Now, having said that, if I'm donating part of my liver for my daughter, sign me up in a blink. I don't care. That Mm -hmm. risk to save her life 
I'm on board. There is a very small but identified risk of dying when you donate a liver because it's a big operation. So donating your liver to save somebody's life who's in your circle is a reasonable thing to do given maybe the connection and the acuity, but it's not a trivial question. It really isn't. Mm. And it really should be done in a center that does a lot of living related liver donations because the experience of the center influences outcome. Kidneys are different. The risk of having trouble when you donate a kidney, assuming you have two healthy ones, is very low. Mm. The surgical risks are very low with the way we we do the operation now. And the risk of you going on to have kidney failure or high blood pressure is low. It's not zero. Your risk is statistically a little bit higher, and you probably need to be followed a little bit closer as time goes on. But the risk from donating a kidney is with good medical care is really quite small. Is it true that um, I think one of the comments that was made to me was, uh, well, if you donate one of your kidneys, then, you know, if something happens to your other kidney, then you're going to be in trouble. But is it not true that if you, if you donate one, then you only have one functioning working one? Correct. And so, yeah, that is true. So if you, if you were to develop a disease, then having one kidney has taken away a bit of reserve. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's why, there are people who who are anonymous donors. They just think it's the right thing to do. Uh, but most of the time, you're donating to somebody in your circle. Mm-hmm. Not always, but most of the time. It, now, the, the conversation with your family around deceased donations hugely important yeah. because the circumstances around somebody who's a donor, you have to understand that, broadly speaking, you end up as a, an organ donor uh, one of three pathways. The first is you have a huge stroke or bleed into your brain. The second is you have a severe um, traumatic injury to your brain, like a car accident or a fall or whatever. And the third would be you have something terrible where there's no oxygen going to your brain, like your heart stops or carbon monoxide or something like that. And when you take a look at all of those conditions, all three of them are sudden, catastrophic, terrible things. So you're sitting at the kitchen table having breakfast that morning, and then you get a phone call that says your brother just fell off scaffolding at work. Like it's a sudden, catastrophic thing. Families are overwhelmed. They're scared. They're exhausted. They don't think straight in the middle of all that. And when you're asking them these kind of questions under less than perfect circumstances, they they may not know what their loved one wanted and they can't handle the burden of the question. If, on the other hand, they're in that circumstance and they said, yeah, we talked about that six months ago. Joe, Joe always said that if it ever happened, he wanted to be a donor. They know what to do. Ooh. And it really, it what I've discovered many times is families don't mind that somebody wants to be a donor. They mind feeling like it's their responsibility to make the decision. Mm. So when you can say, we know what your, what your brother wanted, he already registered to be a donor. He already told you he wanted to be. It's almost like a weight goes off their shoulder. Mm. And it's like, okay, let's do. Joe wanted that to happen. Let's make it happen. Now, there is a small percentage of people who refuse to provide consent 
they know their brother said yes, but the decision goes to them and they just say, I, I can't, I can't do it. That's one of the reasons for our new law so that those things mm. don't happen. I, I know that uh, tomorrow is uh, is kind of a big day in the world of uh, organ donation. It's a green shirt day, which is um, St. Patty's uh, Day. Yet not to be confused with St. Patty's Day. Oh, uh, a little bit of a different day. Uh, green shirt day. It's uh, it's for organ donor awareness and registration. It's all in honor of um, the Logan Boulay effect. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit about what uh, green shirt day is and and sort of where where this all started and, and why it's important? Well, I, I'm in a very, very unique position. I'm from Nova Scotia. I work here, but I was, I've been doing some work in Saskatchewan. They were short in the ICU. They needed some help. So for several years, I was working as an intensive care doctor in Saskatchewan. And by pure coincidence, I happened to be working in the intensive care unit in Saskatoon the night of the Humboldt bus accident. Ooh, so I, uh, I, I unfortunately was fortunately, unfortunately, mostly unfortunately was was taking care of those, those, uh, those people who came in from the bus accident, including Logan. I took Ooh. care of Logan, and I, uh, my colleague and I were actually the people that met with his family. They were clear that Logan had talked about it months earlier. He knew a coach, and and through the coach's influence, said, you know what, I. If that happens, I want to donate my organs. I actually had the privilege of of being involved with Logan and um, and making sure that his gift was honored. And in the middle of all the conversation around the tragedy of Humboldt, the idea that a bunch of people would get a second shot at life because Logan made the decision to donate became a big, big deal. And Ooh. a huge number of people said, Wow, that makes sense. And they signed up to become an organ donor. And since that time, as a legacy to Logan and the value of, of making that decision, his family, in conjunction with a national organization, set up Green Shirt Day. It's an annual way to honor Logan, to honor his teammates uh, that died, and to honor the gift of organ donation and highlight that this is something everyone should think about and decide to do. And green, of course, was the color of the Humboldt Broncos uh, jersey, and and it, it meant something to them. And it's become an annual thing that I'm happy to be involved with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, folks, I, I highly suggest you you take a moment to uh, go check out greenshirtday.ca. Um, and and not not just if you live in Canada, uh, also, also if you're down in the U.S., uh, you can register right now as you're listening to this. And uh, you can register register through your provincial organ and tissue donor registry, and that includes BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, uh, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, PEI, Newfoundland, Labrador, and the Yukon, and of course the United States as well. And for folks that for folks that aren't familiar with the with the Humboldt um, bus accident uh, that happened here in Canada, uh, we did an episode actually um, uh, maybe about a year and a half ago with with Caleb Dalgren, who is one of the uh, mm. one of the survivors yeah. of the crash, and. Um, it's a it's a harrowing tale and a real real like tragedy. It 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 it, uh, it struck the nation really deeply deeply to yeah. its core. And um, and so this this uh, this annual event to honor Logan is 
highly important. And so again, uh, greenshirtday.ca slash register if you want to go check it out and, and register to be a part of that. Um, Dr. Dr. Stephen Bede, this, this has been a real pleasure. I, I, you know, organ donation is something that we've, we've been fascinated for about for years and something we've wanted to touch on. Uh, it's, it's, you know, for a long time, it was very close to my heart in terms of the, uh, the, the very real potential of something that I would have to do one day. And Mm -hmm. so, uh, to get an opportunity to speak to someone who is so close to it and doing so much important work in, in trying to, um, spread the awareness and, and really, uh, sort of change the ways that people think about this is is just such a pleasure for us. So thank you so much for taking time in your busy schedule at work, in your scrubs. I mean, yeah. at any point I was expecting you to get a call that you, know, you had to show up somewhere and save a life. So we're, we're glad that you, we, uh, we were able to catch you today. This has been really fun. Well, it's been, it's been a great to connect with you guys. I, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about this topic. One thing that I would point out, just as a, as a closing comment, the, the benefit to a recipient and their family is obvious, right? Yeah. They're, they're going to die. The thing that I've discovered over years of doing this is that the, the decision to decide to donate is, is something that provides enormous comfort to families that are in the middle of the worst thing you can imagine. There is no good news. And then the opportunity that in the death of their loved one, maybe two or three or five people or 70 people with tissue get a chance at a better life, that provides comfort. That's real benefit to the donor family. Mm -hmm. And everyone thinks of the benefit of organ and tissue donation through the recipient lens. And, of course, that's important. But this is one thing that can help a family going through the worst thing you can imagine. And thank you very much for the chance to connect with your audience. Um, glad that glad I got to do it. This has been yeah, great. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's uh, that's. Uh... For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.